Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Matthew Gavidia, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. In the past year, executive orders by the Biden administration have aimed to improve competition in the pharmaceutical industry by addressing pay-for-delay deals that work to prevent generics from entering the market. Although a step in the right direction, anti-competitive deals continue to be reported as the Federal Trade Commission weighs how to properly penalize involved drug companies. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Michael Abrams, managing partner at Numeroff & Associates, on persistent barriers to entry for generics entering the pharmaceutical market, impact of antitrust laws issued by the Biden administration, and further steps that are warranted to address anti-competitive tactics. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Michael. Can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? Thank you, Matt. Sure, I'll be happy to. So uh, I am um, co-founder and managing partner of Numeroff and Associates. Our firm was founded uh, over 25 years ago. And in that time, we have focused on industries that are undergoing transition. Obviously, there are plenty of industries in the last 25 years that have undergone radical changes in their regulation, in the technology they use, in the competition that they face, and in the the nature of their marketplaces. But one of the ones, one of the industries that has undergone perhaps the most transition, if you will, is healthcare. Uh, for the entire time that we have been working uh, in the field, healthcare has been constantly undergoing evolution in all of those things. And all of those changes require companies to reevaluate their business model uh, and their strategy in order to be successful in an environment that is changing. And so, although we have worked in, in a number of other uh, spaces that were changing, like financial services and, and even IT. Healthcare has been our industry of choice just because there is so much going on and so much opportunity to make a difference in what's happening. And speaking further on that evolution you just alluded to, as a gateway to our main discussion today, can you discuss the emergence of generics in the pharmaceutical market over the past few years? What can be gained through utilization of these drugs? Well, so a generic, uh, when, when a company first markets a drug, it's usually under a patent that uh, when it, until it expires, the company can use to exclude competitors by suing them for patent infringement. In most countries, patents give roughly you know, 20 years of protection, although to be fair, That's 20 years from the date that the patent application is filed. That's not when the company is typically able to bring the product to market. That may take five or even 10 years. And so by the time they actually go to market, the the period of time when they actually have market exclusivity or monopoly uh, isn't nearly that long. So as long as the patent lasts, uh, a brand name company has this period of market exclusivity, and they're able to set the price at a level that maximizes their profit. Uh, This often is considerably more than the cost of development and production of the drug. 
which allows the company to offset the cost of research and development of other drugs that are not profitable or just don't pass clinical trials. So a generic is, is a pharmaceutical uh, drug that contains the same chemical substance as a drug that was originally protected by patents. Generics are allowed for, for sale after the patent on the original drug expires. Uh, the Hatch-Waxman Act, uh, enacted in 1984, is, is the basis for standardizing the U.S. approach to generics. And in 2007, the Generic Initiative for Value and Efficiency uh, Act was passed to modernize and streamline the generic approval process and increase the number and variety of generic drugs that are available. Once generics enter the market, competition often goes down, uh, sorry, competition often leads to considerably lower prices for both the original brand name product and its generic equivalent. Uh, typically, after a couple of years, the price of both of the products flattens out at roughly 20% of the original brand price. So, yeah, generics are usually sold for significantly lower prices than their branded equivalents. Uh, because the manufacturer of the generic does not have the same costs as the innovator that came out with the branded version in the first place. The cost of drug discovery and drug development um, are not a part of their picture, and so they can be profitable at a much lower price. Given that the number of drugs coming off patent has exceeded the number of new drugs introduced, Generics have come to represent the bulk of prescriptions that are filled. In 2016, 89% of all prescriptions dispensed in the US were filled with a generic drug. But these prescriptions only account for about a quarter of total drug costs. So substituting generics for branded pharmaceuticals has lowered the cost to consumers for the drugs they need, making them I think more accessible and in the process, increasing patient compliance with, with treatment directives and, treat, and treatment outcomes. So that's, that's kind of the bottom line. Generics are a boon uh, to consumers from a price point of view. And because they are less costly, they increase compliance. Uh, and I'm sure that has a positive impact on overall health of the population. And speaking further on the competition aspect of generics and their associated substantial cost savings and improved patient outcomes tied with them, generics uh, and biosimilars have faced significant barriers to entry in the pharmaceutical industry. Can you discuss why and address some anti-competitive actions that work to prevent or delay generic utilization? Well, there have been uh, several different uh, events in the history of generics that have contributed or created obstacles to their adoption by the general public. Back in the 1980s, there were a series of scandals uh, related to the approval of generic drugs that shook public confidence in their use. There were several instances in which companies obtained bioequivalence data fraudulently uh, by using the branded drugs in their test instead of their own product. 
and a congressional investigation found corruption at the FDA, where employees were accepting bribes to approve some companies' generic applications and delaying or denying others. The legacy of that, those scandals still today remains an obstacle for some people uh, to this commercial success of generics. A second issue that we have seen uh, over time is that there have been uh, quite a number of reports periodically uh, related to quality problems in generic drugs, especially those that are produced outside the U.S. Generally, offshore pharmaceutical production is not subject to the same level of quality control and oversight that U.S. production facilities are subject to. Um, FDA inspections are less frequent, probably less than annual of production sites outside the US. And even more, the FDA normally gives advance notice of those inspections, which can lead to cover-ups of problems before inspectors arrive. Uh, there have been at Headlines uh, now and then that speak to problems in manufacturing sites, particularly in India and China, and, uh, and, and there have been some serious um, incidents related to that. Even more than these historical points, I think that the concept of generics has never really been adequately explained to consumers. When you step back and look at what goes on, at some point in the life of a branded drug suddenly appears a new product that purports to deliver the same benefit as a branded product that might typically has cost typically quite a bit more. Yet it may look different. It comes in a different package. It has a different name. The technical explanation behind generics of bioequivalents, the approval process, are rarely explained and probably would not make a big difference to most consumers. So when you com combine all of this with the low esteem in which pharma companies are held, the net is considerable skepticism about the claims that are made for generics that can only be mitigated I think by a trusted physician or pharmacist who reassures the patient that yes, you can take this. Yes, I know it looks different, it costs less, but it does the same thing. Then finally, there have been a number of anti-competitive actions taken by drug companies that were intended to prevent or slow the introduction of generics product line extensions that add nominal value like combinations or time, time releases have often been criticized for what they are, delaying tactics to extend patent protection. And a second area that has really been in the headlines lately is uh, reverse payment patent settlements or pay to delay deals. And those have the same effect. Uh, they've contributed to the deterioration in the standing of pharma companies. Agreements uh, like that occur when the patent holder sues a generic challenger for patent infringement. 
then the patent, that then the generic challenger countersues, and then the two quietly negotiate a settlement in which the generic challenger agrees to drop the litigation, often in return for a payment, and obviously a delay in the marketing of its generic. While it is possible to you know, explain this in a logical sort of way, there is no escaping the fact that both parties benefit at the expense of consumers. And that is a point that is not lost to the media. And addressing these tactics that you just referenced, the Biden administration has implemented several antitrust laws geared toward limiting anti-competition in the pharma industry. What is your perspective on these laws and its potential impact on anti-competition? So acting in response to President Biden's executive order on enhancing competition, FTC commissioners uh, voted on July 1st to approve a series of resolutions specifying key enforcement priorities for the next decade. One of these targets was pharmaceutical companies. But the changes that were made by the commissioners were considerably broader than simply naming target industries. The changes involved dramatically broadening the use of compulsory process like subpoenas to produce documents and testimony and at the same time, concentrating power in the chairman or a designee and eliminating the need for broader commission input. The five um, FTC commissioners passed the vote three to two, which reflected reservations of two of the five commissioners that the action that was taken was ill-conceived and a retreat from the consideration of consumer welfare that previously was a key factor in its actions. In my interpretation, these changes are an invitation to politicization of the commission's authority and quite possibly beyond the boundaries of the FTC's congressional mandate. And I think this is concerning. What follows could negatively impact the innovation potential of the US pharmaceutical industry, one of the country's undisputed world leaders and diminish our country's and the world's health prospects in the bargain. You know, there is no question that there have been abuses in the pharma industry that need to be addressed, but the administration's executive order was not a declaration of war and should not be taken as such. Uh, this action, I think, may portend a series, a period of chaos that could do the consumer more harm than good and that could damage the credibility of the, ST, the FTC in the process. As these anti-competitive deals continue to uh, be prevalent today, despite these laws and a seeming uh, division in perspective in the Federal Trade Commission, as you just uh, referenced, what should be the FTC's role in addressing and penalizing companies who partake in these deals? I think we need to reassess the rules and guidelines concerning patent dispute settlements in particular and more importantly, make it easier for interests like Kaiser to sue for damages. Uh, because if indeed the, in this particular case where Kaiser is uh, suing Merck, 
if that is found to have been an illegal anti-competitive move. Kaiser did un unquestionably suffer financial damages by being forced to buy the branded version of the drug when they could have otherwise been able to buy a generic at a much lower price. And so finding a way for them, an easier way for them to recoup those damages would be a step in the right direction. And looking to the decade ahead, what further action is warranted to address drug pricing and improve competition for generics and biosimilars entering the market? I think that the administration needs to focus on creating an environment, first of all, in which innovative contracting is more widely accepted and aggressively pursued. These would be contracts that enable pharma manufacturers to structure financial pricing that would be more in line with the performance of their products with specific patient segments. I think a second uh, important change that is warranted is a reform or a, uh, a second look at the 340B pricing program. Uh, as things currently stand, every institution practically in the country gets to decide for itself that it is an eligible institution, which is a complete de debasement of the original intent of the program. The 340B program was never intended to be an alternate revenue stream for provider organizations and, uh, and may not even serve the population for which it was intended. I think the 340B program has gone substantially beyond its original intent and needs to be reformed. I think that the broader environment for healthcare needs to be more focused on a value-based approach to healthcare delivery. That would be one in which provider organizations are accountable for delivering care at a specific level of quality and for a set price. Most uh, organizations in the US, delivery organizations, have been very reluctant to move in this direction and, and accept accountability for both cost and quality. But that is where we need to go in order to control the cost of care, not just uh, pharmaceuticals, which represent perhaps certainly under 20% of the total healthcare dollar, but the other 80% of the healthcare dollar can only be controlled if healthcare providers accept accountability for both cost and quality in programs where they agree to deliver care to individuals over time in a more prudent and cost-effective way. That will have the effect of lowering both the 80% of the healthcare dollar cost that is not pharmaceuticals and make a difference in the pharmaceutical side of the equation as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.